Biographical Notice of the Tebeid or the Brothers at War by Jean Racine Translated by Robert Bruce Boswell This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Biographical Notice Read by Michael Maggs The reign of Louis the Fourteenth in France like the age of Pericles at ancient Athens, was remarkable for literary excellence no less than for military achievements. In dramatic poetry the names of Corneille, Molière and Racine are not unworthy of comparison with those of Sophocles, Aristophanes and Euripides. Like Euripides, Racine confined himself almost exclusively to tragedy, but as the former has left one satiric drama, the Cyclops, as evidence of his capacity for sustained humour, so the latter has given us Le Plaideur as his sole contribution to the comic muse. In their distinguishing characteristics as authors, the two poets have points of resemblance. In both alike, tenderness and sweetness are more conspicuous than sublimity and force. In each writer there is a curiosa felicitas of language that confers the stamp of originality upon the style rather than on the thoughts, which would often appear tame and commonplace if expressed in less fittingly chosen terms. This feature renders the task of a translator an especially difficult one, and demands the constant indulgence of a reader who has learned to appreciate those graces of diction which no foreign language can precisely imitate. In Racine, as in Euripides, the play of contending emotions is more prominently presented than sensational incidents of horror and bloodshed. And another common trait is the analytical and argumentative vein which occupies so large a space as often to tax the patience of the reader and still more the spectator who requires the constant stimulus of a brisk and sparkling dialogue. Racine's strict adherence to the unities of action, time and place as prescribed by Aristotle and enforced by the critical authority of Boileau. Footnote 1. As understood by the classical school of French dramatists, these rules prescribe observance of the following conditions. 1. Unity of action, or the predominance of one main plot. 2. Unity of time, which limits the action to the course of a single day. 3. Unity of place. End of footnote. Is felt by an Englishman accustomed to the unlicensed freedom of our own Elizabethan dramatists as a needless restriction which tends to render the action monotonous. But this, if it is to be regarded as a defect, is one from which the French stage has been slow to emancipate itself and the genius of Racine was of such a kind 
as to conform itself to such shackles con amore, far more so than that of Corneille or Voltaire. The simplicity of plot in most of Racine's plays enables him to exert his peculiar excellence, the skill with which he can, by constant shifting the point of view, introduce a succession of novel effects with few materials. Not that but this simplicity is, in some cases, carried too far for a drama intended for representation on the stage, as, for instance, in Berenice, where the changes are rung with wearisome iteration on the varying tones of disappointed love, whereas the tangled web of passion in such a play as Andromaque gives much greater scope for sustaining the attention with growing interest to the end. Born on or about December 21st, 1639, at the little town of La Felta Milan, about equidistant from Meaux and Rheims, Jean Racine was the son of a minor government official who was charged with the collection of the salt tax, a position which gave him some degree of importance in the poet's native place. His family were well connected, and the ancestral arms were a rebus of a rat and a swan, Racine. He was his father's only son and bore his name. He had but one sister, Marie, about a year younger than himself. The two children were left orphans when Jean was only four years of age, and though they had a stepmother, she does not appear to have taken any interest in their subsequent fortunes. The brother and sister were adopted by their parents' families, Jean finding a home with his paternal grandfather, while their mother's father took care of little Marie. His grandfather died when Jean was only ten, but his grandmother, Marie de Moulin, continued to treat him as a son, and a tender attachment existed between them, as is shown by his correspondence with his sister until her death in 1663, when he had already appeared before the world as a poet and dramatist. He received his earliest education at the college, or grammar school, of Beauvais, leaving it at the age of sixteen for one of the three rural branches of the famous Abbey of Port-Royal, where he remained from 1655 till 1658. The Port-Royalists are closely associated with the poet's subsequent career, and the religious influences which were then brought to bear upon his youthful mind, were destined to assert themselves in later life in a way that, combined with disappointment and chagrin, changed him from a man of pleasure and fashion into a conscientious devotee, and the author of Esther and Attali undoubtedly owed much to the pious solitaire under whose charge he passed the most impressionable years of life. But at the time, the ardent and imaginative youth chafed against the austere spirit that prevailed at the petite école of the Port-Royal, and the somewhat narrow-minded strictness of their regulations 
long rankled in his bosom, and eventually found expression in a savage tirade against his old instructors, of which further mention will have to be made. A single incident will be sufficient to show both the zealous discipline to which he was subjected, and the determined spirit with which he resented opposition to his favourite tastes. A Greek romance, written in the fourth century of the Christian era, by a future bishop of the church, the Ethiopica of Heliodorus, having fallen into his hands, he was perusing it with the utmost avidity when one of his masters, Claude Lancelot, snatched the volume from his hands and threw it into the fire. The blameless adventures of Theagones and Chariclia scarcely deserved such violent treatment, but the worthy man no doubt acted up to his light, and the mere name of a love story was probably quite enough to make him deem it pernicious. Young Racine's curiosity, however, was not to be so easily bulked, and he managed to procure another copy. This, too, was confiscated by the zealous Magister Morum and followed the fate of its predecessor. But the lad was more than a match for his tutor, and, recovering the forbidden treasure a third time, made himself master of its contents, and is even said to have learned them by heart. Then, with triumphant impertinence, he presented the book to Lancelot, saying, You may burn this, as you have done the others. The tale was one that lingered affectionately in his remembrance, and he was at one time intending to make it the subject of a play, as was actually done by Dora about a hundred years afterwards. There are other stories told of him at this time which show that his memory was as retentive as his imagination was alert. Greek poetry was more to his taste than theological disquisitions, and he gave his good preceptors much anxiety and distress by the zest with which he devoured the Athenian dramatists, as contrasted with his disinclination for pious instruction. Sophocles and Euripides were his favourite authors. He could repeat large portions of their plays, and they were his chosen companions when he wandered through the woods or buried himself in their deepest solitudes. He made copious notes in the margin of his pocket volumes, and essayed poetical compositions of his own on similar themes, a frivolous and dangerous amusement which, when discovered, drew down upon him the censure of the authorities, and as a punishment it was thought advisable to turn his gift to religious uses by setting him the task of translating the Latin hymns of his breviary into French verse, an occupation to which he returned in the closing years of his life. He left the poor royalists before he was nineteen, and proceeded to Paris, in order to study philosophy and logic at the Collège d'Arcourt. 
but he appears to have devoted himself with more ardour to sociability and pleasure, with gay companions like the Abbé Levasseur and La Fontaine, to whom, in his letters, and no doubt his conversation at the period, he loved to mimic the pious phraseology of his former instructors. He was boarded with his cousin, Nicolas Vitar, who was steward to the Duc de Loigne, and Racine himself, at a later time, formed one of that nobleman's household. In an amusing letter, written to Le Vasseur from Chevreuse, near Versailles, he deplores his absence from Paris as an exile in Babylon, and describes his uncongenial duties in superintending the alterations at the Duke Chateau, which he varied by frequent visits to the neighbouring tavern, and by reading and writing poetry, with a soupçon of romantic adventure in connection with a lady who, as he enigmatically remarks, mistook me yesterday for a bailiff. In 1660, he made an unsuccessful attempt to get a play of his put upon the stage, which bore the title of Amasi, and another was at least taken in hand, if not completed. These efforts led him into the society of actors and actresses, and his friends of Port Royal grew more and more uneasy as to his manner of life. An ode that he wrote about this time in honour of the king's marriage with the Infanta Maria Teresa brought him the substantial reward of a hundred louis d'or. He entitled this effusion Le Nymphe de la Seine. He had now given up all thoughts of his original destination, the legal profession, but was induced in 1661 to prepare himself for holy orders at Uzes in Languedoc, with his maternal uncle, Père Schooner, who was willing to resign to him when qualified, the benefice that he himself held, if there should be none other available. Racine remained at Usses for a year or more, studying theology. But with his heart still devoted to the muses, as is shown by his critical remarks upon Pindar and Homer, which he wrote while there, the clerical life was not one to which Racine's temperament at least at this time, was at all adapted, and it was probably his sense of this incompatibility as much as the difficulties which presented themselves in obtaining a satisfactory living that determined his abandonment of a scheme which he had been led to adopt under strong pressure from without. He was indeed instituted prior of Epine, but this was an office which could be held by a layman, and when it involved him in a lawsuit which threatened to be interminable, he did not care to retain it long after finding his true vocation as a dramatic author. In 1663, Racine was once more in Paris, and made the acquaintance of Molière and Boileau, his friendship with the latter remained unbroken throughout life, but the former's kindness was repaid with a discourteous ingratitude which was unpardonable, 
and is, unfortunately, not the only instance of this blemish in his character. It was under Moliere's friendly auspices that Racine's first published play, La Thébaïde, was put upon the stage. This was at the Palais Royal, Moliere's own theatre, and it had a run of a dozen nights, and it was revived the next season. It was in the same year, 1664, that Louis XIV's recovery from the measles inspired our courtly poet to celebrate this important event in such flattering verses that he was rewarded with a pension of six hundred francs, and he was indebted to the munificence of the court for many refreshers on other occasions. His next play was Alexandre Le Grand, which was also brought out by Moliere in December 1665, and it was in connection with this arrangement that the rupture between the two had its origin. The sensitive poet seems to have been disgusted by the manner in which it was being acted, for a fortnight after it had been put on the boards at the Palais Royal, Moliere's company learned with astonishment and indignation that it was being simultaneously performed at a rival theatre, that of the Hotel de Bourgogne. The actors at the Palais Royal punished the poet's underhand conduct by mulcting him of his share of the profits and dividing them all among themselves. Another quarrel occurred about this time which reflects still less upon Racine's sense of generosity and gratitude. His friends of Port Royal, amongst whom were some of his own kinfolk, regarded his career as a writer of plays, and his intimacy with actors and actresses with alarm and aversion. His aunt, Agnes Racine, who was one of them, wrote him an affectionate letter of sorrowful remonstrance, the only immediate effect of which was a bitter resentment, which soon afterwards found expression in a wholesale invective directed against the principles and practice of the poor royalists. His wrath was aggravated by a pamphlet war between his old master, Pierre Nicole, and a certain Desmarais, who had attacked all Jasonists as heretics. Footnote. Cornelius Janssen was a Dutch divine, whose tenets on grace and predestination, as set forth in his great work Augustinus, were condemned by three successive popes. The Jansenist doctrines were supported by the poor royalists and opposed by the Jesuits in France, the principal champions of the former party being Pascal, Arnaud, and Nicole. End of footnote. Nicole, in his reply, taunted Desmarais with having formerly written novels and plays, and took occasion to inveigh against all such people as public poisoners. Racine chose to consider himself personally insulted by these strictures, and wrote a couple of violent letters in which he did all he could to expose the poor royalists to ridicule and contempt. 
the publication of the first of these letters widened the breach that already existed between them and their headstrong protégé, but he was induced by the judicious advice of Boileau to forego his intention of sending the second letter also to the press. Nor did it see the light of publicity till after the poet's death. He even endeavoured to arrest the sale of the first letter, and long afterwards, at a meeting of the Academy, referred to this incident as the most disgraceful spot in his life, and one that he would give his heart's blood to efface. In 1667, one of his best tragedies, and by many it is reckoned his masterpiece, was acted at the Hotel de Bourgogne. This was Andromaque, and the part of the heroine was taken by Mademoiselle du Parc, whom Racine persuaded to leave the Palais Royal for the purpose. Its success was immediate, and his reputation established as a formidable rival to Corneille. Nor has the verdict of posterity failed to confirm the judgment of his contemporaries. With the exception of Phaedra, no other of his tragedies has been more represented at Parisian theatres, and the late G. H. Lewis, among English critics, has pronounced the character of Elmion to be the finest creation of Racine's genius. Andromaque was followed in 1668 by his first and last comedy, Le Plaideur, and the popularity of this clever travesty of law and lawyers has, like Cooper's John Gilpin, made the author's name familiar to many who have little or no acquaintance with his more serious work. He had himself some experience of a court of justice. It has already been mentioned that he held for a time the title of Prior of Epinay, but his right was disputed, and the lawsuit that followed brought the whole matter into such a state of mystification and confusion that the prospect of any definite decision seemed as remote as the Greek calends. No such witty satire had been directed against the gentleman of the long robe since the days of Rabelais, though somehow it failed to make a hit at first, but when Le Grand Monarque deigned to laugh at it, Paris began to see the joke, and laughed too. Racine was now steadily producing new drama almost every year, and between 1664 and 1677, ten of his plays were acted on the Paris boards. He only wrote two more after a long interval, and those for a special purpose, and in quite another vein. In 1673, he received the blue ribbon of literary ambition, the honour of admission among the famous forty of the Académie Française, which had been founded by Richelieu in 1635. Four years later, he was appointed to share with his friend Boileau the distinction of historiographer to the king, to which office there was attached the annual salary of two thousand crowns. He was thus relieved from the necessity of supporting himself by writing for the stage, 
and this had probably as much to do with his long silence, which lasted from 1677 to 1689, as the annoyance and disappointment which he felt at the comparative failure of his latest and perhaps best classical tragedy, Phaedra. A plot had been set on foot by the Duchesse de Bouillon and others to damn the play by buying up all the best seats at the theatre of the Hotel Bourgogne, where Phaedra was to appear, and by starting a rival drama at another house, composed by a bookseller's hack of the name of Prado, on the very same theme. For the first few nights, Racine's play was acted to empty boxes, and though the triumph of his enemies was short-lived, the poet's feelings were so deeply wounded that he renounced all future efforts to court the favour of the fickle public. He had even serious thoughts of forsaking the world altogether and becoming a monk, but was persuaded to adopt what for him at least was no doubt the wiser course, and at the age of thirty-eight, 1677, he married Catherine de Romenet, a simple-minded but excellent woman who had a little fortune of her own. As a husband and a father, he had a family of two sons and five daughters, he gave himself up to a blameless and domestic life, and a complete reconciliation with the solitaire of Port-Royal was cemented by a frank apology for the sarcasms which he had levelled against them ten years before. Boileau acted as peacemaker on this occasion, as he had endeavoured to do when the rupture took place, and it is amusing to learn how the austere Antoine Arnaud and Pierre Nicole were persuaded to read their old pupil's version of the time-honoured story of Phaedra and Hippolytus, and that the former relented so far as to praise the moral lesson which it taught, though he could not forgive him for trying to improve upon Euripides, and complained, why did he make Hippolytus in love? As the king's historiographers, Boileau and Racine accompanied his victorious troops on several campaigns, but neither of them did more than accumulate materials, which were never reduced to any coherent and permanent shape. Like the younger poet, Boileau discontinued all other literary work for many years after his appointment to this office. The regularity of Racine's married life was all that his friends of Port-Royal could desire. He mapped out his hours with methodical precision, giving one-third of his day to devotional exercises, another to his professional avocations, and the remainder to his family and friends. Madame de Matinon, whom Louis XIV had privately married in 1684, took a warm interest in a convent for the education of young ladies, which she had established at Saint-Cyr. Here it was the custom for the girls to recite plays at certain times, chiefly those of Corneille and Racine, and this they had done on one occasion with such evident relish for the tenderer passages when Andromache had been selected for performance that it was deemed unsuitable for repetition, 
and Racine was requested by Madame de Maintenon to write something expressly for her young charges of a more edifying tendency. Boileau advised him to decline the commission, as one beneath his powers, but he was unwilling to offend Madame de Maintenon, and he determined to do his best. The fruits of this resolution was the sacred drama of Esther, which was privately performed at the Maison de Saint-Cyr in 1689, and met with much applause. Encouraged by this success, he essayed a higher flight in Atelier, which was acted by the same young performers in 1691, and is justly regarded as the finest specimen of its kind. Neither of these sacred dramas was acted on a public stage till long after Racine's death, which occurred on the 12th of April, 1699. A short history of Port Royal was his last work, and formed a fitting conclusion to his chequered relations with that celebrated community, for therein he did full justice to the merits to which he had been blinded by passion in the hotter days of his theatrical career, and nobly repaid the debt of gratitude that he owed to those whose pious instructions had so long lain dormant but not dead, as testified by his subsequent conversion and the exalted religious sentiments of his later writings. End of Biographical Notice